Welcome to the Medicinity Podcast. I'm Imogen, a 17-year-old A-level student, bringing you the most inspiring medical students, health tech founders, and young leaders to help you see if the world of health and technology is for you. I'm here today with Dr. Michelle Griffin, a BBC women's health columnist, helping women's healthcare to excel through the many, many things that she does, which we will touch on later. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to the podcast. It's so great to have you on. Ah, oh, hi there, Imogen. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, well, we were just saying before we hit record how we've, how we've known about each other for quite a long time, but it's good to actually yeah. actually get talking. Yeah, it almost feels like it's like in real life um, when you're on a podcast, but not quite. Um, but we've kind of done things a bit backwards post-pandemic because normally you have lots of like virtual meetings, but actually we met like in real life um, at an event and then since haven't caught up so much so yeah it's nice to be here yes yeah it's really nice to have you on and so just starting with what what you do so what you do now is women's health but what is your definition of women's health yeah um this is actually a really big one to be honest because I think Previously, and still very much, people talk about femtech um, and female health and things like that. But really, for me, um, I define women's health as ultimately the healthcare of a woman. So anything that really comes down to a woman is experiencing, and it may not be unique to that woman. We may see the same healthcare conditions for example diabetes but it's about the fact that we see that in men and women but we've got to recognize that it will be different across men and women because of underlying biology um, as a kind of base level but then also what's the effect of that biology and what's the effect of all the kind of um, downstream consequences of that biology to the point now that you know we're understanding a lot more in just the social construct of being a male versus being a female whether that be in the workplace or whether that would be in a healthcare setting we're looking at how females can communicate their healthcare issues and how they're understood or maybe they're not understood and they're dismissed and they're ignored so all of these factors come into it so that when you look at anything within healthcare, it's got to be different in a woman versus in a man. Um, and so when I think of femtech or women's healthcare, women's health tech, I'm kind of incorporating that all in. And I'm just saying, you know, this is um, the healthcare of a woman. And that's going to include lots of different elements along the way. Yeah, of course, it's not just the biology, is it? It's the the social side of of health and being a woman, that that kind of side of it. So that's that's super super interesting. But now we know what women's health is, and that's what you're doing now. But you haven't mm. always been in femtech and the technology side. You were mm. um, a clinician and a doctor before. So tell us a little bit about your initial journey into medicine. Yeah. So. Oh, gosh, that's quite a while ago for me. But um, so I I went straight from med school into um, so the F1, F2, so foundation year one, year two. And, I, you know, I didn't have a clear picture of what I wanted to be. I definitely knew that there were people around me from med school. Um, I was um, at Cambridge and at med school, there were some people who would like 
it felt as though they, since they were sort of 14 years of age, they knew that they wanted to be a plastic surgeon or a cardiologist. And that so wasn't me. But I had very much an inkling and an interest in surgery. And so I was really pleased when I got my rotations. And it was starting with like some quite hardcore surgery, colorectal surgery, but also covering some slightly um, different specialities like urology um, and, and neurosurgery and it was just really giving me a great flavor of surgery and, and I was starting to think I do love surgery but I'm not sure I'm quite found my niche um, and then following those years I like during those years sorry I did a rotation in ops and gynae and I just really loved it really loved it mainly I love variety and that's something that has stayed with me throughout all of my life and all of my career I am a person that kind of really bounces off something new and something different and so to be able to do the massive field of, of obstetrics, along with the massive field of gynecology. Um, I really enjoyed it. But from a very clinical point of view, I wasn't really looking at thinking of this as this is women's health care or that I've become really passionate about it. That's just where it started. I just really enjoyed what we were doing in obs and gynae. And so I then did specialist training in obs and gynae. And as um I kind of went through my specialist training, I just started to become really fascinated by the science that sat behind it. And you did like your postgraduate examinations. And that made you really, really understand a lot more about what was going on, why was it happening and how do we go about treating medical conditions? And I, as I said, I just found it fascinating. Um, and that kind of really spurred me on. And I was definitely veering more towards gynecology. Um, and then um, I actually had my children, which is great but unexpectedly I um, had children and it made me kind of reevaluate how people um, feel and everybody had said oh you know as an obstetrician you'll feel very differently about pregnancy and labor and everything like that and actually none of that changed and you know hand on my heart I really didn't feel differently about it I recognized very much what you know and what your role is and what happens to you as a mum going through pregnancy and delivery and postnatal but I also see that the role that you have to do as a doctor and I don't think I would change much about that um, but what was what was really interesting though is having two daughters made me think about what they learn and it was just really seeing the world from a girl's perspective when they're not educated within women's health and that really opened up my eyes and it it made me kind of connect the dots to the lot almost all of the patients that I had seen about the same issues that they just don't know anything about. And it was really starting from a blank canvas of like you go to school and then you're not taught about any of these things and you don't know about it and you're told stuff from social media and everything like that. And it was connecting those dots that all those different women I had seen, whether it was about their periods or whether it was about a gynae cancer or a prolapse or cesarean section or whatever the issue had been around their gynae health um, and obstetric health, I realized that this is why we see anything from a 20 year old all the way through to I think my oldest patient, patient was 97 years old. And there was still such a lack of education and awareness and, you know, not able to really make decisions for themselves. And that kind of just opened my eyes to you know, really thinking about the healthcare of women and this bigger picture of not only what we were talking about at the individual level, but also just at a society level and understanding that this is 
a really fascinating area and there's massively under-researched, massively underserved. And I really want to put my clinical know-how to good use. And so that made me start to think a little bit differently about, yep, I've conquered this. I've really loved being a doctor. I love being a gynecologist um, and I really love doing surgery. But I felt that there was something else I wanted to be doing. Yeah, well, that's that's insane. I think you've brought a lot of things there that I could pick up. And, you know, obviously having your own children, you've been the doctor side of all of that. And then you've been the patient side of it. And it's, I can imagine it's a very different experience. But as you say, your opinion didn't really change until you see the lack of education in your own children, in your own daughters. And I think going to Somex actually opened my eyes about how much I don't know as well as a young woman. And you think, actually, what I'm doing now might have a really negative impact or positive impact like you just don't know and I think that's that's an interesting one and a bit dangerous actually but the fact that you thought okay well I'm going to move more into femtech and try and tackle these challenges so with all of that I think my next question would be what are some of these big challenges you know we've spoken you've spoken there about lack of education lack of understanding but what are some of the other big challenges in femtech that you face and you tackle day to day yeah, I think um, there's lots. <laughs> there's an awful lot. And it's a bit difficult to, you know, people ask me this question a lot, like, what should we work on? What should we be doing? What needs to change? And, and I'm, I, you know, naturally, I'm a very logical, strategic person. And I always like to kind of have a beginning and an end. And I'd like to have a starting point And we grow from that. And then we get to this point And we could see that all mapped out. And I struggle very much in this area to really nail down like what's the kind of one really key area that we need to work on um, or issue that we need to solve that kind of unwraps everything else and I think probably there isn't one sole thing but I think the the tangible issue is the lack of money around healthcare in women and that comes up time and time again and I think people are getting more and more um, accepting that that is an issue and it's not just like anything in healthcare and we could say we could do with some more money of course we could um, but I think people understand that this is you know a very urgent immediate issue but I kind of want to play that a little bit further and be like why is there a lack of funding here? Why is there a lack of money floating around in whatever, whether you look at the research, whether you look at what's happening in the NHS with the women's health strategy, whether you look at um, how much people are prepared to pay, whether the insurance providers are looking at doing anything with regard to that. It's, it's money in all different shapes and forms, let alone money when you're thinking about VCs and other investment that goes into kind of really the startup innovation space right at the very kind of ground level on the innovation side. Um, so there's lots of ways you cut it and there's a lack of money and that just like runs through all the time. But as I say, just playing this a bit more forward, I think it's it's understanding why is the money not filling into these bits? I think that's really the crux of it. As I say, we hear here time and time again, there's a lack of funding, but it's like, why would you not want to fund this? What is like, what's stopping you? What's the barrier here? What's holding you back? What's making you nervous? Um, or what makes you think it's already solved and we're sorted and everything like that. Um, and I think, 
you know, it's really trying to get to grips with what the reasons are. Um, and I think lots of people are indefinitely in the innovation space. Um, time and time again, we hear that, oh, it's niche. Anything to do with healthcare with a female is niche. And, you know, no matter how many times you write it, which I do a lot in lots of different spaces, LinkedIn, BBC, um, on podcasts, etc., 51% of the population in England, in the UK, is is um, female. So how could it be niche? And I think it's like that's not cutting through. And I think what it is is that people, generally speaking, including healthcare providers, and and I was one of them for sure. So I'll happily kind of take this, is that the medicine that we learn at med school is a given you're sitting there as a woman you've got female friends um you can think of your mom your sister your friend or whoever and you learn about as i said diabetes at the beginning and you just presume that what you're learning about is just a level playing field between males and females and it's you know and then there's this one section which is like a part of a part of a part of a term so it's a tiny amount of time that's spent which is reproductive health <laughs> and that's supposed to cover everything and then that's like okay so other than anything to do with your reproductive organs it's just the same you know one in the same and of course that isn't but I think you know that's just one slice of the pie that says that's one perspective that's looking at that but when you move that forward and you think that's where the doctors are being trained like and then they go into hospitals and gp surgeries and elsewhere and they're working with other healthcare professionals who've been trained in a similar fashion then the healthcare provision has this understanding that there is no difference there and we don't need to know it and then somebody then pokes up it comes somebody completely left field and says look i really want to look at you know the role of diabetes across the different sexes and everyone's like well, i don't think that's really a thing is that a thing i don't think that's a thing and so it's like we're yeah. really having to kind of turn back an awful lot of like ground in thinking that this is the same and when we accept that it's different then I think that that will unlock that, oh my gosh, if this is different, then there is potential here and we need to know where is the potential? How big is that potential? How can we use that potential? So we definitely need to do the research. We need to do the innovation. We need to rejig the healthcare provision, et cetera. And in that, then that's really going to hopefully kind of open up the gates to a lot more funding across those areas. But we have to recognize that there is a difference there. Um, and, you know, and, and then the money will hopefully flow. Yeah, I think I think that's very interesting. I mean, anyone who's saying it's niche just sounds like they're kind of in denial, got their head in the sand, don't want to do anything about it because it's obviously not niche. Like it's half the population, as you said, 51%. And I remember hearing, I, I can't remember the specific statistic, but that there's more funding in diabetes research in general than women's health um, research. And that obviously is a lot more niche because not half the population have diabetes. Exactly. Like what? And no, that's a really good example of yeah. just kind of thinking that, you know, in that diabetes research, across all of that research, everything should be segmented out according to males and females, um, you know, and and thinking about, you know, 
just about, for example, everything that we've done in clinical trials before women were allowed to participate in clinical trials, everything that we said that this drug isn't going to work. What we actually mean by that is this drug hasn't been shown to work in males for this condition. That doesn't mean it's not going to work in females. So there's a massive potential sitting there in all the drug assets that got developed to a point of clinical trials that have never been tested in women. And we don't know whether that might be of use. We literally just don't know. But it is this thinking that when you go to said investor or research place and you're saying, okay, you know, I think we should revisit all the drug trials and actually that didn't include women and look at whether it you know, could be successful in women, even though it wasn't successful in men, those that we need to be that obvious with it. And we need to break it down to that simplest of terms um, and think about everything in that way, really start to segment across these two. Yeah, completely. And as you said, it's not just about, you know, reproductive health, women have completely Mm. different anatomies, they're more likely to get, obviously, I'm not a doctor, I don't know the ins and outs, but they're more likely to get certain cancers, certain conditions, more likely to have different kind of heart problems so why wouldn't you do specific research on each person like on a man and a woman it just it doesn't make sense to me and you know you said we need people to start doing these these trials like how do you think we can get people to actually do something about this big problem yeah so I think um there are some initiatives in place very much by the larger funding um uh, the, the the larger funds, whether they from a charity point of view, from a government point of view. Um, in addition, uh, there are initiatives put in place with regard to the ethics. And so it's suggestion, guidance, et cetera, to say, look, you know, you want to be thinking about you're doing at least a 50-50 split between men and women. If you're if you're not going to specifically say everything I'm doing is a focus on women, which is absolutely fine, and you just want to look at X intervention or X monitoring or whatever it be, and you say, well, at least it needs a 50-50 split. But again, it needs to be stronger than just a suggestion coming from these places, but actually this is a prerequisite to ensure that you are successful for funding by showing that this is what you are going for, i.e. a 50-50 split in your your trial sample, um, uh, your trial sample group, and clearly outlining how on earth you're going to do it. Because we know that females compared to males, if you actually look back, they don't get you know the the percentage recruitment is lower in females the percentage retention on a clinical trial is lower and there's some interesting research that's been done to that it's like why is that going on and there's a lot about well you know the role of the many women what they have to do where they have to be the inability to be flexible around a clinical trial and therefore you know they they just can't make the time for example to actually get to that clinical trial or stay on that clinical trial so it's about you know acknowledging again these differences and saying how do we work around this you know um doing something at you know at a typical time when many many women will be doing x activity such as picking up kids for school yeah many men do that as well 
but you've got to really recognize that like what is the group of, that you are looking for what are their habits what's their daily routine how does that fit into a clinical trial but even right back at the beginning where how are you recruiting these people you again men and women are looking at different things and I think if we looked at things much more with a marketing lens on like how if I need to recruit 40 to 60 year old women I wouldn't be looking at the clinical trials I'll go to people who are already selling products at an amazing volume to 46 year old women and I say look where do these people market themselves because that's where I want to market quote unquote my recruitment to my trial um, you know and I remember when I worked on the UK CTOX trial, which is like the biggest ovarian cancer screening trial that's ever happened. 200,000 women were recruited to that trial. That is no mean feat. Um, and it went on over 20 years because of the follow-up time. So recruitment and retention was paramount. But, you know, the biggest thing that they did at the recruitment phase is go into the women's magazines. And they put articles in women's magazines and they identified that look, these are the issues with ovarian cancer. This is the risk of ovarian cancer. Um, you know, these are the things that we would be looking for. It would, you know, this would then be great if you could be part of this. Um, and that really spoke to so many people. And I remember even now that people were, you know, like my mum's friends at the time were saying things like, oh, yeah, I, I've seen this advert in, you know, this women's magazine. Maybe we should do it and things. So it's really targeting towards the behavior and the way that women are. And I think you've got to have when you come back to that original question. Sorry, I've kind of gone on. But the original question of like, what's the biggest issue is, I think, really getting into the mindset of how that person that you're trying to target whether it be for a trial whether it be as a customer for your innovation whether it be as a patient for something you're planning to do in the healthcare setting whatever it be get into don't think that you know you have to go out and test and that's a principle for anything that's not just for women's healthcare. Um, but make sure that you do that um, because what we think we know with regard to women is often not the case yeah completely and I think what you've touched on there you know that you need to come from a marketing side you can't do the exact same thing for one group as another it's not it's just mm. not going to work you know you can't put up posters for men's health in a I don't know to just be really generic like a nail salon because they're just not going to see the information and if you want say like a group of Middle Eastern people to come in for a clinical trial you wouldn't have it on a Friday afternoon like you've just got to kind of work with your audience as you say or as the people you're trying to get on board and just doing the exact same thing for men it obviously isn't going to work and that's why I'm not having this retention I think that's that's really really interesting and so talking about clinical trials obviously you had your post that you put out the other week and talking about how 30 for the last 30 years only they've started including women in clinical trials and even then it's nowhere near as much as men so you know with that and I remember hearing this at the Somex health tech talk how we're just not taught the same the information is outdated or inaccurate so what would your advice be to young women to make sure that they do stay healthy and they do make the right decisions even though the information might not be out there yeah I mean for sure there is a massive gap there's a massive research gap which what we mean by that is there's an, a large amount of stuff that we don't even know that we don't know and there's also a large amount of stuff that we know that we don't know um and you know, this end for creates a lot of unknowns. Um, but having said that, 
I think that every single girl, woman could go a lot, lot further and do a lot, lot better by just educating themselves with the knowledge that is already out there. I don't think, you know, that we all have to be right at the cutting edge of research. I think that when, you know, I used to work at the Eve Appeal and one of their biggest marketing campaigns, um, they're, they're a gynae cancer charity that funds fantastic gynae cancer research, um, but also funds a number of patient stroke women who may not be yet patients or perhaps going through a process, um, but they fund a kind of a nurse led service for information awareness asking questions and lots of other things and so they really are a great place with regard to gynae cancers and as I say one of their biggest marketing campaigns is to the general public can you name the five gynae cancers and the majority of people cannot and you know I think it's fine when you do medicine and you learn about these real corner cases and random uh, named syndromes, cancers and whatnot. That's fine. But for the majority of things, when we come to cancer, it's named after the organ. So breast, breast cancer, prostate, prostate cancer. And the five gynae cancers, unsurprisingly, are all named after the organ um, where they occur. And so not only can people not name the five gynae cancers, I think actually what's more worrying is they can't name the five like reproductive gynae organs and that's across men and women mm -hmm. and that is basic information apart from anything else if someone I mean imagine being a GP and someone came into you and said I have a pain or I'm bleeding or I've got a lump where couldn't name it you know, and if we thought about that of like, well, it's in my breast. Oh, I found it on my hand. Um, I'm worried about this bit on my shoulder or my heart hurts or my stomach hurts. You know, just not being able to say, where is my vagina? Or, you know, I understand that there is a uterus and that there's ovaries, etc. And I understand at the basic level what they do. It's not surprising at all then that people get into so much difficulty because they can't articulate what is going on because they don't know the basics and they don't understand how the basics works and I'm not saying this that they should feel bad about that quite the opposite it's just that we should recognize how dire this situation is and we have to do as much as we can with regard to you know, school education with regard to health, for example. But I think every single person who is listening on this podcast and further afield, if I could say any one thing, it is get to know the basics of your body. Because if you know what normal is, then you've got a much better chance of spotting and calling out what is abnormal. And at the end of the day, we have to take responsibility to be our number one advocates for our own health and well-being and a lot of the time that's when illness occurs is because we don't know or we haven't paid attention to it or we haven't sought help when we needed to and so a lot needs to be done in just understanding the basics of our own health as a woman which yes does include gynae health 
but hopefully in time as we understand more about that kind of individual sex related health um then you know we all become a little bit more literate on that as well yes completely i can say from you know still being in school the education on it is so limited i remember in year seven um so you're still fairly young like they're not going to teach you everything understandably but they don't really touch on it again to be honest um and i'm doing biology a level maybe that'll come later but basically i remember in year seven they did you know sex education reproductive organs that kind of thing and they did all of the organs and everything in the men and then just did menstruation in girls and then we yep. had a test on it. And I remember the test because I, you know, I was revising for it and everything. And it was only about the male side of things. And I was like, what? Why are you not testing us on on the other one? Like that was so, so weird to me. And the education is so limited. And even now, I, I bet if I asked, like even myself and a lot of my friends, they wouldn't be able to list those things you've said there that people just don't know about. And, you know, it's just like knowing your body you know it's your yeah. body why wouldn't you know about it and you just you're just not taught and you're not encouraged to know and I think that's it's a shame to be honest and I think you're right people need to just educate themselves on what's actually going on in themselves so yeah. and that it's actually happens. a massive danger I mean it's a shame yeah. but more so it's a massive danger and the biggest kind of health program campaign you could do is just make sure that boys and girls understood anatomy across both sexes um because you know we don't live as individuals we're you know we're in partnerships we're in families we're in friendships we're in colleagues whatever it be we are interacting beings and so we need to know what's going on and um i think you know it is a massive danger well, it's definitely a danger when people can't articulate what's going on and i think what's really hasn't been lifted the lid on at all is yes we I think the message of a lack of awareness and understanding and knowledge around the female body is being more accepted that there is a lack there but as you say what isn't being looked at though is what's happening in schools where you're just learning about males you're not learning about females not only do you you know don't get that knowledge you also start to subconsciously take on board that it's okay not to know about female things it's okay not to talk about female things it's okay not to flag anything to do with a female yet it is perfectly okay to do all of that in a male and that imbalance really starts to play up everything in society and it therefore i think has significantly damaging effects that why should I be talking about something that's going on with me as a female that's relating to my gynae anatomy my gynae organs that no one bothered to teach me about when I was a kid society doesn't want to talk about it it's all hush hush buried under a carpet and then you want me all the doctors are like come 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 and talk to us about your problems I'm like you've got to see there is a massive barrier that has to be overcome to get to that I don't even know how to talk about my problems because I was never taught about what's normal let alone about what's abnormal and I've spent all of my life being told what the situation is with male with no concurrent discussion about what's going on with females in any you know in any bit like those anatomy lessons in biology no we're just not going to cover it in females that is having a seriously subconscious effect on men and women the whole population and that we really have to break that down 
completely and you know as you say there is is about the population you know health in women not even women's health health in women doesn't just affect women you know it affects brothers sisters you know your bosses your your children it your partners you know it affects everyone and if if women aren't being educated then they can't look after themselves and therefore look after everyone else and that has a massive knock-on effect as well I totally agree. And also, though, it's like it's such an asinine argument, I have to say, is that you have to explain why the health of a woman in front of you is important. Because when on earth would a man be saying, well, look, I really need to look after my health because look, this is going to have an effect on all these other people. It's just a given. Like we have a healthcare system. We have to look after everybody in that healthcare system, no matter man, woman, kid, adult, old, young, whatever. We just have to look after them and we don't have to reason it and explain it. It's just a given. We have to be doing it and we need to do that ASAP. I love that I think that's a, a brilliant a brilliant nice quote to almost end on and there's there's a lot I still want to talk about but I think what I'll do is I'll go to the top three tips so what are your top three tips to doctors who want to do other things you know they've had their clinical experience and now they want to start mm-hmm. having an even bigger impact what would your advice be to them okay so I think um oh top three tips number one is if you have that feeling that you want to be looking for something else, then listen to it and don't ignore it. Um, But just because you want to look for something else doesn't mean that you need to push yourself to be doing a complete and utter career change. If you feel like you want to do that, that's great. And I'm all for it. That's exactly what I did. But you don't have to do it, Um, which kind of takes me to my um, top tip two, which is, you know, do look at things that you can do in a stepwise fashion, because I think your learning skills, your understanding a new landscape at the same time of, you know, reassessing the NHS and your current job as a doctor in a different light. So I think those two things can be really complementary. That's definitely the path that I went down. And I, you know, wouldn't, um, you know, I, I would really recommend it unless you've got a clear idea, um, you know, of where you want to go. You don't have to take this massive jump and kind of have a clear, clean break. You can definitely do in a setwise fashion. Things like sabbaticals or working part time or having a side hustle, something that you do on the weekends um, or, you know, you take on an advisory role, uh, you do an internship, etc. There's lots of different ways of doing it, of really dipping your toe in the water because there's so much out there and it's just about working out what would you like. And then the third thing I would say is don't be in any rush. So if you definitely you know going back to my first point if you have a feeling that you want to do something then you definitely need to listen to it and act on it but I would really recommend and this goes back to my point that I said right at the beginning is that I wasn't a person who knew exactly what I wanted to do and I've really enjoyed the journey for sure and I know that's a cliche um, but you know I didn't know when I left the NHS where I wanted to be um, and I've done lots of different things to get to where I am now and I don't know what the next 10 years will really look like but what I do know is that I, you know, really want to take all the good of the situation I'm in at the moment and be very honest and upfront with myself to see what would I want to change. And then that helps me plan my next step. But, you know, just rushing to get to this imaginary goal um, is probably not going to work out for you. I love that. I think that's that's definitely, definitely the advice that needs to be given because there isn't a set route with a lot of this stuff and you just need to test the water, see what happens, listen to your gut feeling and kind of see where that takes you. So thank you definitely. so much for being on the podcast today. I think we've had a really, really great chat. It's been really interesting. I've definitely learned a lot.
Oh, thank you. It's been wonderful. I've really enjoyed it.